The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Thanks for having me tonight, you guys. It's good to be here. I've never spoken at the Inn before. It was my dream as a little boy to speak at the Inn, and now it's coming true. <laughs> and you're all here to watch it. I hope you don't hold it against me that I'm not a football fan, but I tried. This year, I have a friend who, I, she was my uh, Becky Riggers. Does anybody know Becky Riggers? Probably the most strongest football fan that exists in the world. And uh, we, I said that I wanted her to be my internship supervisor to get me more informed about, um, specifically about UW Husky football. And... It worked for a little while. I got kind of interested. I learned some names, and I was, I was kind of in the loop. But then other things happened, and there was stuff on TV, and it just <laughs> kind of didn't work out. So <clears throat> um, it's so great to be with you guys tonight. I was so excited when Ryan asked me to come and share with you. Uh, but then he said that he wanted me to come and speak about forgiveness, and I kind of thought, oh, man, that's not good, because I realized that I actually can't really talk to you about forgiveness until I ask for your forgiveness. And I'll tell you why I need to ask for your forgiveness. I, like Ryan said, I grew up in Colorado, but then I came out here to Seattle when I graduated from high school to go to college at SPU. Oh, hey, SPU, that's good, that's good, my people. Um, And then not only that, but I worked at SPU for like six years after I graduated. So I was a bit of an SPU super fan. And two of those years were working in the Office of Residence Life. And so you may or may not know that SPU has had some, you know, some policies about alcohol consumption on campus and things like that, maybe paying a little bit more attention to that than, than other schools that exist. And whenever I, part of my job was meeting with students who were kind of part of the disciplinary situation. So whenever I would meet with students who had gotten busted for drinking alcohol in their dorm room, I'm telling you, I had this conversation so many times and without fail, the students would look me in the eye and say, Oh, yeah, that alcohol didn't belong to me. That belonged to my friend from UW. <laughs> Every single time, without fail, I can't tell you how many times I had. And what I realized was that this conversation sort of built in my mind this picture of UW. I mean, I, 10 years in a row at SPU, not a lot of exposure to University of Washington. I was just imagining that this place was just filled with kind of drunken, stumbling <laughs> alcoholics with big bottles of booze in either hand who were drunk all day and all night. So... I mean, you can imagine my surprise when I, you know, came here and started working at UPC a couple years ago and to find that there were people that were, that that wasn't at all true. It was mostly not true, I will say. Um, So please forgive me. Will you forgive me for my wrongheadedness about UW? I mean, I've I've changed my ways. I've gotten to know a lot of you in this room even, and you have proven to me that, that UW is full of really intelligent, thoughtful, amazing, creative students that have a lot of other things going for them. So... Uh, Now that we have gotten that out of the way, let's talk about forgiveness. Um, I understand this quarter that you've been talking about what it means to have a childlike faith. And you've also talked a little bit about how childlike faith is different than a childish faith. You know, that childish faith is kind of immature, a little bit self-focused, whereas a childlike faith is a faith that's humble, that is uh, dependent on God, that is eyes wide open to what it is that God is doing. So tonight we're going to explore a little bit about what forgiveness has to do with cultivating that kind of childlike faith. And I think we can all admit that forgiveness is kind of a complicated topic. You can't really, I mean, you hear forgiveness and you're like, oh, that's such a nice idea. That makes me feel happy. But then the more you think about forgiveness, it's impossible to not think about 
you know, maybe some of those things that you haven't forgiven in your life, some of those people that you're still maybe kind of holding a grudge against or holding something against someone. Uh, It's also even worse maybe to think about all those areas in your own life where you need to ask someone for forgiveness and you haven't really done that, right? So it's kind of this complicated topic straight out of the gate. Um, I think that's why a lot of us are really good at sort of shoving those things beneath the surface, right? That we we kind of like to avoid the whole enterprise of forgiveness if we can do anything about it. Uh, you know, we make a lot of excuses for why it's not really important for me to forgive so-and-so, you know, let's just let that die, or it's not really that important for me to ask for forgiveness for this thing that I did, because maybe it wasn't as bad as I'm making it seem. You know, we just kind of pretend like nothing's wrong, right? Has anyone done that before? Yeah, you know you have. Your head should be going like this, because let's just be honest. Uh, I also think that there's these times when we try to practice forgiveness, you know, we try to sort of muster our courage, but what really ends up happening is that it becomes this kind of diminished, kind of shallow thing, you know, where you sort of, it's that whole forgive and forget idea, right? It kind of, that phrase kind of drives me crazy because I think it really diminishes the true practice of forgiveness and the true sort of journey that forgiveness is, where instead we're just kind of going through the motions, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, okay. And, you know, you say the words, but there's really no change in the heart, right? You kind of imagine like the two kids who are in a fight and their mom's like, hey, you guys apologize to each other, and they're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, okay, okay. And then they like march in opposite directions and don't speak to each other all day long. That's not really real forgiveness, is it? So I think we're talking about this childlike faith versus a childish faith. I think that kind of ignoring forgiveness or diminishing forgiveness into this kind of shallow thing, that would be more in the childish faith category. But I think Actual forgiveness, the practice of real, deep forgiveness, is an essential part to having a childlike faith, solid faith, and really just to kind of living life as part of humanity. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What does it mean to really forgive? What does it mean to really be forgiven? Um, so let's just talk a little bit about what forgiveness looks like. What, is, what does forgiveness look like in our lives? I want you to close your eyes. I actually do want you to close your eyes. Don't fall asleep, but close your eyes. And just think of a time, just to get our minds in this place, think of a time when you experienced forgiveness. Think of a powerful time in your life when you've experienced forgiveness. I want you to think about who it was that was forgiving you. Who, imagine their face in your mind. Who was forgiving you? Imagine, think about what it was that they were forgiving you for. What was at stake? What did it feel like to be forgiven? What were some of the emotions that you experienced? And then did you fully believe that you were forgiven? Did you believe them when they forgave you? What was it about that forgiveness that made it feel believable and real? Hey, you can open your eyes. Sometimes I like to just do that to kind of get us all in this, in this mindset. Um, one of the stories that came to my mind as I was thinking of this um, comes from a place in me where, look, I'm a broken person. Sometimes I can act like a giant ass. And I have a lot of stories where I've had to ask for forgiveness, more than I care to admit. But the one that was probably one of the more kind of striking and life-altering experiences has to do with my mom. So uh, my mom and I are a lot alike. We actually, uh, we're both pretty stubborn. We're both pretty sarcastic. We both really enjoy being right about things. Uh, And we both are known to kind of say things without really thinking them through. So you can imagine how much fun this dynamic was my whole life growing up. Um, We would constantly butt heads. I would always be doing that thing that adolescent young men are prone to do where, like, my mom would say something totally normal and, you know, average. And I'd be like, yeah, okay, mom, whatever, you know. And she would just kind of be like, okay. 
great. Um, and so there was this one experience where I was during college, during the summer, I went with my family on this trip to Israel. It was kind of a big tour trip with my parents' church in Colorado. And, you know, we're going and seeing all the sites. And it was this incredible trip. But the thing that really stands out the most to me is this one experience that we had um, over dinner. And I can't even really remember the specifics of what happened. We were eating dinner. It was a big kind of room full of us having dinner. And at my table with my parents, you know, my mom, again, says something so normal, like, oh, these potatoes are so good. And I'm like, yeah, mom, whatever. <laughs> you know, kind of just totally dismiss her. And I could just see something go off in her eyes, and she just kind of lost it. And she didn't, like, lose it on me. I mean, she didn't, like, start yelling, but she just sort of, like, kind of, like, did one of these, and then she just got up and left. And, you know, my family, we were kind of looking at each other like, what was that about? That was kind of weird. And so my dad kind of followed her, and then a little while later, he came back, and we were like, what's going on? And he said, well, you really hurt her feelings. And... You know, I, I was like, oh, man, that's not good. So I, I went and I found her. She was in their hotel room, and she was just crying. And we launched into this massive conversation that, that I will never forget. I mean, it was kind of one of those, like, lots of truth bombs being dropped all over the place. She basically said, she said over the years that she felt like she had been really diminished and ridiculed by me. She said that whenever we spent time together that she had to start kind of preparing herself to get hurt feelings because of the sort of mean way that I would dismiss her. Um, she said that I was arrogant, that I only invested time in people where there was something in it for me. Uh, she just was kind of calling out all of these things. I mean, yeah, and that was hard. That was not an easy thing to hear any of that stuff. And with every single comment, there was this urge that arose in me to kind of defend myself and go, that's not true. You don't know what you're talking about. But Everything that she said, I knew, was 100% true. I knew that I had no defense. And what was so hard is that here's my mom kind of exposing this, this dark person that I had become. She was uh, totally telling the truth. And I felt really exposed. I felt really ashamed. And all I could do was apologize. All I could do was ask for forgiveness. And I, I kind of knew in that moment that I had two choices, you know, that I could either keep on with these behaviors, keep on treating my mom and probably a lot of other people in my life that same way, being sarcastic, being kind of a jerk. Or I could listen to what she was saying and actually take it to heart, ask for forgiveness, and hopefully let that be kind of the beginning of a new direction for my life and a new direction in our relationship. And that's what I ended up doing. I apologized. I apologized in as many ways as it's humanly possible to apologize. I mean, I was so uh, knocked over that I had kind of the power... You know when you don't realize that you have that power in someone else's life and then all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, they've been caring what I think about them and I never thought that they did. I couldn't believe that I did that to my own mom, nonetheless. I mean, this, this person who has loved me unconditionally my whole life. So, I mean, I was crying too and I apologized over and over and then I went back to my hotel room and I was crying more. It was like my sister was like, what's happening right now? And I went back to their hotel room and I was like apologizing again and crying more. And my mom was just like, I forgive you. She looked at me and said, I forgive you. And I could tell that she was being genuine. I could tell that, in fact, that she was relieved because I think she knew that by offering me forgiveness, that that would give me the opportunity to kind of, like I said, start in a new direction. So um, it was quite a night. It was quite an unforgettable night. And it really did change. We both look at that as kind of this turning point moment in our relationship where, I mean, obviously, do we still have conflict? Yes, we do. But the way that we work that out looks a lot different now these days, that's for sure. Um, 
to me, that's what forgiveness looks like. It, I think forgiveness is not easy. That wasn't easy for my mom. It wasn't easy for me. We both had to kind of give something up in that conversation. Forgiveness doesn't always seem fair, right? That I look back on that night and I'm like, I don't know that my mom totally needed to forgive me the way that she did, but she did. Uh, but I think more than anything, what I want to say about forgiveness as a framework for our conversation tonight is that forgiveness is an opportunity for us to start new. It's an opportunity to move in a different direction, a fresh start. And, you know, I think we forgive each other for big things like that, but we also forgive each other for small things all the time. You know, you forgive someone for cutting you off in a conversation. But uh, I think regardless of what you're forgiving or what is being forgiven in you, that's an opportunity to start fresh. So that's kind of the definition that we're going to be using tonight. Uh, We're going to read a story from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus tells this great story about forgiveness, and I want to read it together Um, And just kind of see how this story shapes our understanding of forgiveness. So let's put that first part up on the screen. Okay, so I'll read this out loud. It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. And for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and his children and all of his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me. Have patience, and I will pay for everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. So that's forgiveness, right? That's a pretty amazing story. Um, Just to review what we're learning so far, the person in this story that's giving forgiveness is this king. And I think this is one of those stories where it's pretty clear that this is a costly forgiveness. This is one of those higher stakes forgiveness because we're told the amount that's owed to him is 10,000 talents, right? That was basically the equivalent of like millions and millions of dollars. It's kind of a crazy amount. It's an amount that we don't know how a servant would work up this kind of amount or why a king would forgive that. But uh, for some reason, the king was willing to forfeit Uh, his return payment because he had compassion for this servant, right? So just keep in mind, it would have been really gracious for this king to just do what the servant asked, you know, to just kind of be patient and wait for the debt to be repaid. That would have been a stretch. But the king goes even one step further to say, actually, your debt is forgiven. It's over. You're free and clear. And you have to imagine that wasn't easy for the king. I mean, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars. I think anybody would miss that. And it really doesn't seem fair. You know, there's really no reason for it. But that's what forgiveness is. It's this unconditional, from the heart, forgiveness. And you would think that this would be the perfect opportunity for uh, this servant to kind of start in a new direction. Like I said, that he might kind of have a fresh page now that he's been forgiven of this massive debt. Because, I mean, if you think of it on kind of the level in this room, I know a lot of you are probably racking up some debt just by being students, right? That that's kind of a normal part of being a student in America these days. So... um, You'll find that when you graduate and if you have a lot of debt, that that will, sorry if I'm the first one to tell you this, that might limit your opportunities. Are you surprised? It might be that you're like, oh, I can't wait to graduate and I want to like travel to Europe for a year and get a bunch of tattoos. But (laughs) if you have a lot of debt, you might actually find that you have to get a job and start sort of paying that off. So I hope I'm not the first person to tell you this because that would be kind of a bummer. But... um, Imagine with me, if you will, that you graduate from college and you've got all this debt and your phone rings and it's the bank. And they say, hey, you know that big pile of debt that you've been racking up? We decided, no big deal. We're just going to cancel it. Have a good life. You'd be like, what? 
what's up? It would be amazing. Think of all of the doors that would be open to you. You could like get a job based on how meaningful it was to you versus how much it paid. Probably way more people would be part of the Peace Corps, if that's even still a thing. I don't know. Um, you know, you would be like taking all your friends out to dinner instead of writing this big check to the bank every month. You would have a lot of a lot more opportunities that you've never even dreamed imaginable. So you can see how forgiveness of debt, even for this guy, was probably so much bigger. I mean, because for him, it was like, what was going to happen was this king was going to throw him in jail with his whole family, or sell him, I'm sorry, with his whole family, until the debt was paid, which is never, because we're talking about millions of dollars. So basically, like, his game was over. And then the king was like, don't worry about it. He, and so he got this new lease on life. That's pretty amazing. And that's forgiveness. It's this amazing, unconditional, offered in love, kind of thing. It doesn't seem fair, but it's an incredible thing when we get to experience it, right? So unfortunately, that's not the end of our friend, the servant's story. He uh, kind of has a hard time receiving this forgiveness, really letting it sink in. So I want to read the rest of the story now for you. He says, uh, the, the text says this, but the same slave, as he went out, he came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. And then this fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. But he refused. And then he went and threw him in prison until he would pay the debt. And when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother and sister from your heart. Dun, dun, dun. Kind of a scary ending. Um, So again, quick review. Immediately following this massive forgiveness of debt, this guy literally walks out of the king's quarters, runs into his friend who owes him What is by comparison like a very tiny and insignificant sum? And he's like, dude, you owe me. Pay me back now. And he refuses to let the guy off. And in fact, he throws him in jail until the guy pays him back. And you kind of read that and you're like, I'm sorry, what? How does that work? That's not right. It stirs something in us. It stirs in us these feelings of like, this is unjust. This can't be happening. People like that are jerks and they can't act like that, right? And the thing is that we don't know why he doesn't forgive. I mean, it could be a hundred reasons. It could be that he's kind of operating out of this place where he's feeling kind of weak and embarrassed that he's just had to have this big debt forgiven and maybe he's kind of using this as a power play, like it's some pride thing. It might be that he has some crazy like anger issue with this guy from before and he's like, I'm gonna get that money no matter what. You know, it might be that this guy might just doesn't have any friends who are like pulling him aside and being like, hey, you think you could maybe let this one slide because you were just forgiven all those millions of dollars? You know, maybe this isn't a big deal. It could be that he's just absolutely oblivious. I have no idea. We don't get to know that. But what we do know is that he's certainly holding on to something, right? He's got his hands tightly gripped around something. And this, I think this whole story is intended to create some outrage in us. I think we're supposed to read it and just go, this is not right. This is just not right. But here's the crazy thing. It seems to me that the thing that is most outrageous and most repellent about this whole story, which is this slave's inability to really receive his forgiveness and let that transform him and start a new direction, that really irritating, frustrating thing is the same thing that lives inside of us. 
we share that same inability to really receive and hold on to our forgiveness. And here's the thing, when we don't hold on to our forgiveness, when our forgiveness is not taken, a, taken hold by us, we are unable to turn around and forgive others. Our hands are too clenched to open up to forgive others. When we lose track of our identity as the forgiven, we become unable to change directions, right? You have to keep in mind, this whole thing started when Peter asked about forgiving others. And Jesus, as he often does, turns that question upside down and he answers by telling a story about what it means to be forgiven. Jesus says, you wonder about forgiving others, but actually, it's you who needs to be forgiven. So in situations like this when we've been wronged, I wonder how often do we think those same things that Peter thinks? How often do we think, how many times do I have to forgive these people? How am I supposed to just kind of forgive and forget? When I'm wronged over and over, how am I supposed to just let that go? I'm the one who's gotten screwed here, right? And what's funny is at first Jesus gives what seems like kind of a straight answer because Peter goes, oh, should I forgive seven times? And that's not a random number. What you need to know about that is that back in this day, the Jewish culture would have been to forgive three times. That was kind of what the law said. You forgive three times, and then after that, no more. So Peter was probably pretty pleased with himself, thinking, oh, well, Lord, we probably forgive seven times, right? Because we're so awesome. And Jesus is like, don't forgive seven times, forgive 77 times. And I think that that was probably kind of a, a bit of a snarky answer. It was certainly kind of a revolutionary answer. And I think in that moment, Peter probably was like, oh, crap, I'm asking the wrong questions, I think. Because, I mean, really, that's 77, 77. And some texts say seven times 77. I don't know. It's kind of one of those confusing things. But um, Jesus says 77 times. And I think while Peter was probably realizing, oh, I'm asking the wrong question, and that was a pretty shocking answer, I think there was probably some people in that crowd, and there might even be people here tonight, who think 77? Great. That's a number. I can deal with that. 77 times. Okay. And then you kind of pull out your little pad of paper and you start keeping track, right? And you're like, okay, how many times have I forgiven my roommate for letting his alarm go off so long every single morning? I'm at about 64. I'm almost there. How many times, how many times has that one friend canceled on me at the last minute and left me waiting for her at Starbucks looking like an idiot? She's done that like 46 times. Okay, I'm almost there, right? Do we do that maybe a little bit? Because we all know that after that 77th time, it's on. Am I right? No more of this forgiveness business. All hell breaks loose and justice is enacted. Am I right? But here's the question. If we're keeping track of how many times we've forgiven, is that really forgiveness? And that's when Jesus dives into this weird story, right? Jesus tells this outrageous, countercultural, revolutionary story because he wants to make us think. And like I said, it's a crazy story. I mean, the amount of debt, crazy. What servant racks up millions of dollars of debt? It's a crazy story. What king forgives millions of dollars of debt? And as we said, the most preposterous thing at all, what person turns around and refuses to really acknowledge this massive thing that's just happened and to be changed by that? It's crazy. And the reason that Jesus tells this crazy story that makes us so outraged and so emotional is to help us pause and see that we are just the same as that servant. Because the servant in this story, he doesn't forgive 77 times. He doesn't forgive seven times or three times. He can't even forgive one time. And we say that's crazy, but Jesus is saying the person who sees 77 times as the appropriate limit for forgiveness, he's the same as the person who never forgives at all. 
Because if we're keeping track of how many times we're offering forgiveness, if we're just making those little tick marks on our pad of paper, we're not forgiving. We're just planning our revenge, right? And like the servant, we have a pretty tight grip on whatever it is that we think we deserve. We've got a pretty tight grip on whatever it is that we think we should have control over. The servant's problem, which is also our problem, is not that he has to learn what it means to forgive and forget. The servant's problem that's also our problem is that he needs to learn how to not forget that he's forgiven. We need to learn how to not forget, how to not lose sight of the fact that we have been forgiven. Now, I know that when you gather at the inn, you hear a lot about God's love. And I'm here to tell you that that's the good news, that we're created by God. We're created by God to share love and hope and compassion and kindness with all of God's people, right? And we talk about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and we hear about this new life in Christ that we receive and that we're forgiven of all of our sins, past and present and future. And all of that is true, and all of that is incredible and mind-blowing. And if you haven't explored that, prepare for your head to explode, because that is the good news. But then we walk out these doors, and we go back to our house or to our apartment or to our dorm room, and we're confronted by all of the ways that we've been wronged. And we're confronted by all the ways that we've been taken advantage of. And we see all the ways that we've gotten screwed and we think it's just not fair. And we forget. We forget who we are. We forget that we've been forgiven. We forget that our primary identity, in fact, is that we are the forgiven people of a loving God. And that our primary job as the forgiven people of a loving God is to offer that forgiveness and love to the world around us. We forget. We walk out that door and we forget the exact same way that that servant walked out from the kingdom's, the king's court and forgot what had just happened. So the question becomes, how do we move from being forgetful people into being forgiven people? How do we move in a new direction? How do we become people that forgive? My wife and I have an 18-month-old daughter, and her name is Jane. I mean, right? Probably, not probably. Definitely the, the most adorable child in all of mankind. Um, so Jane is at this age, 18 months old. She's at an age where she is exploring everything. She touches everything. She puts everything in her mouth. She's trying to figure out kind of what are the boundaries, what's safe, what's not safe, what can I do, what can I not do. And every time that there's a new opportunity for her to try something new, so if we go to a friend's house and there's like a new room to explore, or if there's like a new staircase or something like that, or a new toy, she'll always kind of like kind of do this funny walk towards it. And then right before she touches it or whatever it is that, it's, that it is, she'll sort of like look back at us and be like, I'm going to do this right now. What do you think about that? And our job in that situation is to either go like, yeah, that's awesome, play with that toy, or to be like, okay, time to do something different and kind of redirect her. So every time that she's kind of reaching for some sort of sharp object or she's like wobbling towards a big glass of red wine on the coffee table or whatever, that's when we've got like a book or a silly face or a toy or something to kind of redirect her and put her in kind of a new way. And we do that because we love her, because we want her to be safe, because we know what's best for her. We don't want her to be hurt or to make a big mess or to cry or be scared. And really, the reason that she looks at us is because she trusts us and she knows that that's true. She knows that we've got her best interest in mind, right? So this is the dynamic that works out. And sometimes, you know, she, we, might, we might not be around or, you know, she might forget to give us that look and she'll, 
you know, start trying to crawl into her own little, like, toy stroller, and she'll fall out and hit her head. Or, you know, she'll, like, try to put on Lisa's rain boots, and she'll fall and hit her head. Or she'll, like, put a bag over her head and run around, and then she'll hit her head. And there's a lot of head hitting that happens at this age. But um, the bottom line is that if she kind of makes that little connection with us, if she sort of glances and is like, hey, what do you think? Things usually go pretty well for her. You know, she usually keeps her safe. And one of the things that I'm reminded of when I watch this every day is how God makes himself available to us in that same way. That God, all that God wants from us is to connect, to kind of have a little bit of eye contact as we go throughout the day. He wants to check in, and he's given us the opportunity to do that all the time. He's invited us to, to fix our eyes on him, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And when we do that, here's what we're reminded of. We're reminded that we're loved. We're reminded that we're forgiven. We're reminded that we belong to him. And I know that a lot of us probably avoid making that contact because we freak out and we wonder, will God be pissed? I haven't really talked to him in a while. Will God be mad that I don't really trust him? Will God be mad that I did all sorts of things that I'm pretty sure God would not be that excited about? What right do I have to try to connect with God? But God says, just connect with me. I love you so much, I just want to see your face. I can't tell you how much I love seeing that girl's face on that screen. And that is just a glimmer of how God feels about each of us, right? He just wants to connect with us. So what does it look like to have this connection? What does it look like to fill our days with these kind of glances in the direction of Jesus? It seems to me that this can happen in all kinds of ways. It might happen for you. It might be that you connect with the truth of who you are and the truth of your belovedness and your forgiveness when you're at your core group or when you're with your really good friends who are able to remind you of what's true about who you are. It might be that this happens just as you pray, as you ask God to reveal, who it, to reveal the truth to you about who you are and who he is. It might be that you get this through reading scripture, through reading more stories like this that tell us a little bit more about who Jesus is and who he's inviting us to be. We have access. We've been invited in to very safe arms of love that care for us and have our best interests in mind. And it's, it's by taking that invitation, by making that glance, every so often as you move through your day. That's how change happens. That's how we get to start moving in a new direction. That's how we get to be people who know what it means not only to be forgiven, but also to start forgiving other people. And remember, I mean, this is what, that's what the whole point is, that Peter wanted to know what it looks like to forgive all these other people, but Jesus helped him see that that kind of forgiveness is impossible unless we know that our identity is to be the forgiven. So what I want to do right now is to just pray together um, I want to lead us in a little, bit, a little bit of a prayer that will not only allow us to kind of pause and think about what it means that we're forgiven, but also that will hopefully give us what we need to walk out these doors and not forget that that won't just kind of fall out of our brains as we move back into our lives and have this opportunity to exercise forgiveness. So why don't we pray together? Lord, thank you for your presence in this room. Thank you for your presence of the Holy Spirit who communicates to us and, and reminds us that we are loved. Lord, we, as we talk about forgiveness, we are so aware of all of the dark places in our lives that uh, we need forgiveness for. All of the things that we try so desperately to hide from our friends, to hide from our family, or to hide from you. We think of all the grudges that we're holding uh, we think of the things that we have our hands around so tightly that distract us and keep us from um, living the lives that you've invited us to live. 
Lord, we pray in this moment that you would forgive us of those things. We pray that you would take them out of our hands. And even as we pray this, Lord, it's hard to imagine that you are willing or able to forgive what feels like a pretty huge pile of darkness and regret and shame. And yet you are. As we enter into this time of prayer, we know that your grace is bigger than our sin. We know that your love is bigger than our darkness. You are bigger than us. And so, Lord, as people who, are, who have been made new and as people who are being made new every single day, we pray that you would empower us to move in a new direction. We pray that you would allow us to leave this place and be people who are all about the work of remembering who we are and offering ourselves to the world. Because, Lord, if we try to do that without connection with you, we will fall. So we pray that you would fill us up we pray that you would bring to mind those places in our lives where, we, where you might be calling us to bring forgiveness and to bring hope and to bring love. And it's intimidating to think about those places where we might be called to forgive or to receive forgiveness. But we pray that you would embolden us, that you would help us to be new people as we leave here tonight and that we would be ready to do the work of your kingdom. Lord, thank you for the people in this room. Thank you for uh, this time of life that they are in and... Um, even though the stresses are abundant and the to-do lists are long and the stresses are overwhelming, I thank you for the work that you're doing in growing them up into being more your people. We love you, Lord, and we're grateful for the love that you have for us, that you care for us as your children. It's in your name we pray. Amen.